Hey, it's Barry Ritholtz. I'm here with Michael Batnick. Our guest this week is Morgan Housel, and we're going to discuss the three biggest mistakes investors make. Welcome to The Compound. Morgan, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. So you write a lot about behavioral finance and economics. As do you. As do I. Uh, Mike occasionally dabbles in the space. It's a scam. Right. Well, according to Gene Fama, the whole thing is a fraud. (laughs) So I wanted to ask you a question. What do you think are some of the biggest mistakes investors make from a behavioral perspective? We could sit here all day and talk about the dozens of, of ones, but a few that stick out to me. One that I think is maybe like the grandfather of behavioral mistakes is the idea in investing that results are going to be correlated with effort. And it's a really innocent mistake because investing is, I think, one of the only endeavors where the correlation between effort and results is not that, is not that strong. But almost everywhere else in life, if you want to do better at something, you put in more effort. Like We know in investing, if you can just dollar cost average and leave it alone, you'll probably do if good, if not great, if not like right. top quartile. But imagine like what other industry is like that? Like, could, could you imagine telling a football player, if you want to get better, just sit, at, just sit on the couch, don't do anything? You're describing every doctor I've ever spoken to who wants to transfer their intelligence and hard work into investing, and, and it just doesn't work. And, it's, and this is why it's so pervasive, is because it's a really innocent mistake, because, like I said, every other area of life, that is the case. The harder you try, the more effort you put in, the better you're going to get. Like, I brought up the example of, like, Tiger Woods. There's stories of Tiger Woods when he was, like, a teenager, going to the range and hitting a 1,000 golf balls. Mm-hmm. Or Michael Jordan would go to the would, would would go to the practice court and just dribble for like ten hours without ever shooting. I just read that uh, Robert De Niro watched The Godfather fifty times before the second one. <laughs> Seriously, just over and over again. Yeah, is that true? Seriously, yeah. I, I, well, I don't know it. if it was on a loop. He might have taken a break. But like, but. there's no there's nothing else in life where to do better, you should just stop trying. But the, there's a lot of evidence that investing that's the case. And I'm not militant passive, but even to the people who are successful at adding alpha over time. I think it's by and large people that are know the limits of their effort being put into it. And they're seeking alpha in ways that are super simple. They're, like you go back to like Buffett's, uh, you know, Buffett can make a decision about an investment in an hour or two. Part of that is just because he's been doing this so long that I think his heuristics of getting to the right answer are so right. clean. But I think part of it too is he's just focusing on a half dozen variables. And the super deep, complex analysis just isn't necessary. So even, even in that situation of like successful outperformance, it's knowing the limits of putting your effort in. And I've, I've thought about, I remember years ago, I uh, read that Bill Ackman, when he was doing his research on, on Herbalife. Herbalife, spent $25 million on diligence, which even for Bill, Bill Ackman, that is a lot of money, $25 million to do research on one company. And I thought like, how, is it even possible at that point to be, unbiased about it? Or do you think you've put in so much effort into this that you have to be right? It's worse than that. And I wasn't going to bring the endowment effect as as one of my biases. But since you brought this up, there is a little amount of information it takes for you to become knowledgeable about a company. Everything else that you're learning, all it does is you're sharing information that's already publicly available and known and therefore already reflected in the stock price. But what it does is it it adds to your level of overconfidence. Yep. You think you really know the stock, plus you put so, so much time and effort into it. Totally. It's very hard to just wipe your hands. Just what are the walk odds away. So you have the endowment effect and you have the sunk loss fallacy all wrapped up in this little 
hey, people think that effort and performance are correlated. So what are the odds that Bill Ackman or any of us, after spending $25 million, would say, yeah, there's nothing here. Yeah. Walk away. You're either long or short. Zero. So you yeah. talked about the grandfather. What's the second cousin once removed of behavioral uh, mistakes? I think if you wrap up timing into a couple components, one is just underestimating the amount of time that's probably necessary to put like the odds of success in your favor. Not the guarantee, but the odds of success. I think meaning, people meaning underestimate compounding that. or just letting things work out? Just, letting, just, just out. letting things work out. And example is like most investors, if you ask them, will claim to be long-term investors. I think the overwhelming majority of people will say, I'm a long-term investor. Yeah, nobody says they're short-term. Very few. Some will, but a, a minority. But then if you well, ask... No, no, no. Only professionals say they're short-term. That's, that's true. Right. Yeah. But then if you ask people who claim to be long-term investors, what does long-term mean? What is the definition of long-term? What's your average holding period? Or what time frame are you thinking about? A lot of people will actually tell you Tuesday. one year. Yeah. Oh, really? Or even here, here's an example of this. The, the Fed has a survey where they put out expectations for long-term inflation expectations. Their definition of long-term is three years. So I think that's a pretty common thing. Or if, especially if you're heading into retirement, like five years or 10 years is definitely the long-term. But if you look historically, like what is the holding period in which historically every holding period finishes with a positive return? What do you mean by that? If you go, if you look historically yeah. in every rolling period, what is... Uh, the amount of time that's necessary in which every rolling period finishes with a positive oh, return. Okay. Historically. Now, does that include dividends reinvested? And, and is inflation. that inflation and adjusted? Inflation. Oh, Dividend wow. and inflation adjusted. And look, that's rare. That happened, uh, I think, in, in, in the 70s. No, right. I think it was actually in the, in the, in the 70s, uh -huh. uh, in that, that stretch of, of terrible returns. But it's happened. And periods where you've gone 10 years or more with either negative or crappy yeah, returns. Let me push back. You think that that's a mistake? Like, is it realistic that somebody has an 18-year holding period? No, but, but, but so that's a perfect segue into like the other part of timing is just not, is the implicit expectation that like the market knows and cares about your specific time horizon. Right, like so it's people, relevant. So you can tell people like, look, to do well in the stock market, you need 20 years. And that person might say, well, great, I'm retiring in four. I'll give you but six no months. One cares about, <laughs> no one cares about what your time horizon, the market does not care how much time you specifically need. And I think it's like, no one actually thinks like the market owes you something, but they implicitly think I'm gonna retire in five years. So these are the returns that I need to occur in the next five years. But the market's going to do whatever it's going to do without, it doesn't, doesn't care anything about you. And I think a lot of smart people, I've fallen for this myself of like, okay, so I'm saving in a 529 for my kids. My kids are going to go to school in uh, 16 years. So these are the returns that I'd like to earn between that. But right there, you're falling for a trap of like, this is, I'm personalizing my goals with whatever I think the market's going to do. And I think that just, if you really wrap your head around that the market's going to do whatever it wants to do and does not give a shit about you, then I think it just, it necessitates a longer hold period than most people think. Really interesting. Mike, what are you looking at in terms of big behavioral mistakes from the man who wrote the biggest mistakes uh, by the best investors. I'll plug your book. Thank you. Thank you for the plug. All right. So I've got, I've got a few, and I think the, these are not necessarily like the biggest mistakes that cause the most amount of pain, but I would just say maybe like some of the most common mistakes. So Jason Zweig wrote about this, that people often learn the wrong lessons and specifically they learn lessons that are over precise. So in the dot-com bubble, they didn't learn not to day trade. They learned not to day trade internet stocks. And then they went on to currency, biotechs or, 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 or yeah. whatever. House flipping. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think in terms of risk, people either take way too much or not enough. Not enough is a huge problem amongst people who have substantial assets but aren't multi-gazillionaires and they need to see actual compounding over decades. 
So the Dalbar study that we all know has its issues shows that the behavior gap is, you know, massively wide. And I think that that might be overstated, but I think that the, the overall like portfolio gap is whatever the behavior gap is. It's like, maybe it's not Dalbar's number, but it's big. But I'm saying it's understated because that only accounts for the money that's actually invested. If you yeah. include the amount that people have yeah. in cash, they're underperforming even bonds by a drastic amount because people are just risk averse. But can I bring up a counter to this that was actually one of my others? Is I think another big mistake that people make is the assumption that there's one right answer to most investing questions. Like, is this stock cheap, yes or no? Or is this allocation proper, yes or no? And I think the flaw in that is that the right answer is just whatever works for you personally. So I have, I've written about this. I have a higher cash allocation than I think any financial advisor or any model would say is reasonable. What is your cash allocation? So my cash allocation- And are you sitting in cash waiting to make a down payment it, somewhere? He's, yeah, waiting, he's waiting for a fat pitch. Uh, waiting for a fat pitch. My cash allocation, I, I have four times as much stock as cash. Does that okay. make sense? So you're 20% cash. And the reason is because- You it, need a financial No, advisor. the reason is because it helps me sleep at night. I'm fully aware of the returns that I'm giving up. And I know what it's going to cost me over the long run. I know that my stocks are going to earn a much higher return than the cash. But, I'm, but I want to optimize for just going to bed at night and looking at my wife and kids and saying, we're going to, no matter what, or almost anything that could hit us reasonably, we, that's we going to say hit us, we'll to, be okay. We say this to people all the time. The optimal portfolio isn't the one with the highest returns. It's the one that you can live with. Yes. If you have a fantastic portfolio, but it makes you so nauseous that in March 09, you sell everything. And we've gotten emails from people. Hey, I got out when you guys were very negative in 08, 09. And here it is five, 10 years later, I'm still sitting in cash. You can't recover from that. Yeah. So you have to be able to live with it. And also in terms of there not being one right answer, I would not recommend my allocation to most people of my age and income. It's, it works for me, but it might not work for right. you. But I think the assumption that there should be one right answer causes a lot of debates in finance that are, aren't actually debates. Like we, we're not we, saying, are you right or wrong? People are just saying, well, this works for me, but this works for me. And it's fine if there's distance between us. Half of the battle on Twitter are between people who are investors and people who are traders, and they argue about different things things, it's wildly different targets, goals, risk tolerances, and timelines. Yeah. Uh, of course, there's a lot of One other thing results. that I had down was that I think that, I don't know anybody that's necessarily immune to this, is people often think that the recent past, or that the future will look like the recent past. Or even that, the long-term past. Classic recency effect. Yeah. This is something I've been accused for, and I think it's a decent criticism, is looking at long-term history and using it as at least a proxy for what's likely going to happen in the next 50 years. Mm -hmm. And if you know anything about history, you know, Germany was a really civilized, good society uh, in, in, the, in the generations before World War I, World War II. And then, you know, it's, there's a long history of countries wiping Snapping. themselves out. And the yeah. last 50 or even 100 years that we've had in the United States is no guarantee of what's likely to happen. I think it's a good proxy and it's a good first approximation of what's likely to happen. But the, the assumption that even the long-term history is a good predictor of the future when, is... When we look at the long-term history of things like valuations, there are some pretty reasonable arguments to make why buying a software company in 2019, you shouldn't pay the same multiple when you were buying a steel company a hundred years ago with the cost of labor and the cost of capital goods and setting up physical right. factories. Now it's two, literally two guys, a laptop and Amazon, Amazon Web Services, and that's the next billion dollar company. So maybe a higher PE, and I don't want to justify expensive stocks, 
But maybe on Higher average, than it was in 1890. Right. Go back a century, there's a reason why the average PE has crept up over yeah. a century. And this is a point that the pseudonymous blogger Jesse Livermore has made, that there's kind of like a poo-pooing of recency bias, that people are only concerned with what happened in the last couple of years without an appreciation of history. Mm-hmm. But there is a, a point, like there's a balance between the two, that if you really want to look for things in the data that are likely to be relevant to the future— the recent past is more relevant than the long past. And there's things of like the long past of history that are always going to be the case. These things are just embedded in human nature. But if we're looking at specific things like PE ratios or profit margins, the recent past is going to be more relevant to the future than anything that happened, you know, in 1872. The, the only thing I can tell you, this is a guy named Wyckoff who wrote a book in, I want to say, 1923, How I Trade Stocks and Bonds. And if you just substitute internet for railroad and semiconductors for uh, telegraph, nothing else has to be changed. You know, it's one, unbelievable. One of the reasons why I guess Fama is cranky about behavioral finance, and I am sympathetic with that view to a certain extent, is that it's very diagnostic, but there's no prescriptions offered. Yeah. So, all right, yes. you make mistakes. So, so what? Like, so now what? What do we do? I would argue no, I, I would, our prescriptions. Yeah, offer. I would say the biggest prescription is just knowing yourself and embracing it with both hands. I know that my risk tolerance is lower than most traditional models would put out. So, rather than saying, you know, trying to change my behavior or trying to look at more data to get me more optimistic, I'm just going to embrace that this is who I am, but you and it's abil- fine. You have the ability to do so. But I think that's the prescription: is knowing yourself and embracing it. But how is the average investor supposed to know themselves? Well, through the help know, of an advisor, hopefully. So there's that, but there's also we know people tend to be overly optimistic about their skills. The the whole move towards towards indexing and moving away from active towards low cost passive is effectively admitting not only can't you pick stocks, but I'm so bad at the process of managing that I'm just gonna throw it into an index and forget about yeah. it. That is purely a behavioral decision making. I guess process. my my thing is that I'm pessimistic on the idea that humans will no longer be human. Like, no, I think it's always going to be the case. Particularly in aggregate, there's always right. going to be we're making the same mistakes. But if there's if there is a way that an individual can get better, and I'm not that optimistic about this because it's very difficult. It's just looking at how you've behaved in the past and realizing that that is a very good proxy for how you're likely going to behave in the future. That you're probably not going to fix your mistakes. That if you panicked in '99 or if you, you were greedy in '99 and you panicked in 2008, you're probably going to do that again in the right. future. And just embrace yeah. that. And, well, and also people have different objectives and different definitions of mistakes. One person's mistake if you think that you're going to buy. An hold one person's mistake is selling and another person's mistake is not selling if they're if they're like actively trading they held on too long and they didn't sell early enough i'm sure there are a lot of people right now who sold in 2008 who even today would say so glad, so glad i did that got out you know right. got out they just you, you can you make up a narrative of why something worked out well that's the classic hindsight bias where people claim to have seen things coming that they didn't see all the all the choices that are obvious in hindsight we have a tendency to internalize. And suddenly, how many people really saw the financial crisis coming? Uh, you count it on one hand. And now you go back 10 years later and ask people, what did you see coming in 06, 07? Half the people are going to say, well, I knew derivatives were a problem. I knew housing was overvalued. I knew, I knew the subprime was a disaster. That's just classic hindsight bias. And I think and like beyond hindsight bias, the number of people who saw the financial crisis coming at all is small. The number of people who saw it coming and got it right for the right reason is even smaller. Mm-hmm. And the number of people who saw it coming for the right reason and knew and knew what the subsequent outcome was going to be, like how to play the financial crisis, I think that rounds to zero. Or pretty close to it. Pretty you close had, to you it. You had John Paulson. But 
no, no, one that's, of the few no, people. No, that's the perfect example. Paulson's returns after the financial crisis oh, were terrible. horrendous. Right. So he saw it coming for the right reason. Well, it was actually then, Pellegrini, to, his, his, his researcher, analyst. But then what to do with it, which was just as important. How to express that in the trade. So if you look at Paulson's aggregate return over a longer period of time, people just focus on how much money he made in 07, 08. He's a net money loser across his yes, career. And on, that a dollar weighted, yes. on a dollar-weighted basis. Oh, yeah, because he was $20 billion actually at the peak? No, More, he was 40. 5 or really? $6 billion through the crisis. So he made 2 or $3 billion. Then he scaled up to $48 billion and proceeded to lose, I don't know, 30 40% of it? Not only that, but he was a year or two early in betting on the housing market, which is totally understandable. Right. That's not a criticism. But he was having to pay money out on those contracts. Right. So Constantly. if you look at the net returns of the, from the two years he was early on the contracts, mm -hmm. and then he made a huge gain, and then he played it terribly afterwards, the net return is not nearly as but impressive isn't as that, it would be. Is, but isn't that the story of all... Like most successful investors. Yes, but, yes, but that's, that's the whole point of, like, of what hindsight bias does and putting in effort into, into, into your outperformances is just like a very difficult thing. And even the people who we lionize, if you really look at the full track record of what they've done, it's usually less impressive. This is true for Buffett as well. well the last 15 years? The really, or not even 15, the last 20, years. 25 years. And what's interesting about Buffett is that he really became famous at the moment his returns started to stink. Right. Like he was back in the 70s and 80s when he was just crushing it. He was still a relative nobody. Right. And even in the 90s, he was well known among professional investors. But it wasn't until the mid 2000s that every guy in the street knows who Warren Buffett is and what he's done. And that was a period in which he hasn't really like when was the last time that Buffett consistently bought companies or picked stocks that generated outperformance against benchmark? Right I think it's been I think, I think it's crisis. been 25. No, I think it's been 25 years. No, during he bought Goldman Sachs. He did a bunch of stuff. Those did not lead to outperformance. But to your point of gobbling up companies huh. and, and generating alpha, it's been a while. It's been a long time. And of course, his overall track record is still great because he did so well back then. So you're saying uh, uh, Buffett should have bought an index fund. <laughs> what about Bill Miller? He beats the S&P for 15 years in a row, yeah. ending in 08, 09. Goes from top 1% to bottom 1%. And then 1%. he had this washout. This year, He's done his great. fund well, I, is up 70%. I He's think, the best performing hedge fund in the world. I don't know if this is exactly right, but I think like the last five years have been incredible. Yeah, so he's he done had well. a great period where he got famous and he had a washout where people wrote him off and now he's doing great again. Amazing. But that gets to another point of like the consistency of performance. Like does not exist for anyone anywhere except for Renaissance Technologies, like maybe right. the lone exception. But even the great investors, there's a study put out a couple years ago. I forget who did it. Vanguard did this. It was like yeah. over a 40-year period, this, these funds have done very well. Not just for a slim period, but right. their 40-year track record is great. And even those funds underperformed like half the time. And, and, and who's going to stick with it? You figure, Few. ah, these guys are right. done, we're out. Right. So uh, there was a 20-year study and 14% outperformed. And of those 14%, 72% underperformed for three straight years. Yes. And, that's, and, that's and those are when you have a washout. Right. Nobody stick with three straight years of other performance. No. And you also, I don't, also don't think you can blame investors for walking away after a three-year dud because investors, like you, you, you can claim they're being short-term. Like, you're, oh, you're just wandering away at the bottom, selling at the bottom, the behavior gap, the worst timing. Sure. But if you are an investor putting your money with a professional manager, what you're trying to do is size up that manager and see whether they have the, pre the requisite skills to outperform the market. And a three-year, it's very difficult in real time without hindsight to know whether a three-year outperformance signifies that that manager has lost its skill or they're just going through a rough patch. It's so easy to point fingers at other people and look at their mistakes. But I think Jason said, Jason Zweig said, like it's, behavioral finance is really more of a, of, of a mirror 
instead of a window into other yeah. people's behavior. Yeah. Like it's so easy to point to be like, ah, that person's an idiot. They shouldn't have done that. But like, we're all guilty of making these mistakes. And I think that's like the biggest point. Or like a, another point to that. I've written articles before that I thought made a, made a good point. I thought they were good. And someone else would point out and say, Maureen, you wrote this article a year ago that argues the exact opposite thing. And I thought that article was made a decent point as well. So I think like the contradictory nature of a lot of this stuff too, just makes it a really difficult problem. All right. I think that's a good place to leave it. Thank you so much, Morgan, for coming on. Let us know some of your most common mistakes in the comment section below. Thank you so much for watching and we'll see you next time.